It probably won't come as any shock or surprise to you to hear me say that I believe human beings were created for a purpose. There's a reason why all of us are here. There's a reason why humanity is upon this earth. If I could speak very personally for a moment, uh, I'm going to. Just get over it, basically. You know, I, I am who I am. Um, one of the purposes of my life is to be a good husband to Anna, to be a godly husband to Anna. And one of the purposes of my life is to be a good and godly father to Camden and to Declan. I am blessed to, to be a priest in God's church, so one of the purposes of my life is to the, be the priest he was, wants me to be, to rightly proclaim the word and to, uh, to rightly minister the sacraments. And each one of us in here can say something very similar to those to what I just said, whether uh, you are married or single, whether you are a mom or a dad, whether you are retired or still working, you can kind of go down the list of things in which you say, this is the purpose for which I was created. But there is a purpose that underlines everything. There is a fundamental primary purpose that sort of trumps everything else, and maybe we can say there's a fundamental primary purpose from which everything else blossoms and from which everything else grows. The first question found in the Westminster Shorter Catechism is this, what is the chief end of man? And this question focuses our attention on what the fundamental purpose of all human life and activity is. What is it for which all of humanity was created? There is a purpose for life. The Westminster Catechism asks the question, what is the chief end of man? And then it answers the question by saying, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That's the purpose that lies behind and beneath everything else that we do. That's the purpose that lies behind and beneath all of the human life because humans were made to worship. Open your Bibles with me to Psalm 150. As we look at Psalm 150 today, we'll see that all of human life is called to worship God for his deeds and his character and is called to worship God with joy and thanksgiving. We start at the very, be very beginning of Psalm 150 because I was told one place that the very beginning is a very good place to start. <clears throat> the psalmist begins Psalm 150 with this proclamation, this call to worship. Praise the Lord Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. And maybe we just take a push pause just here for a second because I think we need to realize something of, of great importance just from verse 1 alone. As the author of the psalm calls people to praise or worship God, we must recognize that the praise and worship of God is not something that is strictly done here on earth. On the one hand, we must notice this, the psalmist calls physical beings, humans, to join in the praise and worship of God in the earthly sanctuary. And on the other hand, uh, the psalmist calls upon all of the spiritual beings to worship him in the mighty heavens. We have to recognize that the worship of God 
or let me say it this way, that the God who is to be worshipped is so great that he cannot alone be worshipped by those beings upon earth and he cannot alone be worshipped by those beings in heavens, but only together is there sufficient praise. That's how great God is. And this is a recognition, I think, this, this very first verse, a recognition, a, a tip of the hat, perhaps, to the notion that that which we do and that which we proclaim, while bound in time and in space uh, upon the earth, is actually something that is timeless as our praises join with the praises of the heavenly host. Does the psalmist here perhaps recognize the reality that what we do on earth in praise echoes that which is done in the heavenly realms? We say in our Eucharistic prayers on a regular occasion, uh, praising God, we join our voices with angels and with archangels and with all the company of heaven. And maybe, just maybe, the reality and recognition is here right in our face. That while our praise this morning may be bound between the hours of 10 and whenever we finish, and our praise may be bound at this location, on this property, in this city, bound by these four walls, in reality, our praise is boundless, is timeless, is spaceless. We are far more than we think we are, and our worship is as well. This is humbling, I think. You just stop for just a moment and recognize here that we mere human beings, uh, the, I think it's in Psalm 8, the psalmist says, what is man? Right? Here, what is man that our voices of praise should join with the angels and the archangels and all the company of heaven? What is man that we should stand in the heavenly realms? That's humbling. But while it's humbling, and it should humble us, but while it's humbling, it is an incredible bestowal of dignity by God upon man. To think that as we worship God, we are blessed to come into the presence of Almighty Yahweh to join in angelic worship and that He is present amongst us as a bestowal of dignity that is incredible. It's amazing, isn't it? The more we learn about God, the more amazing His grace perhaps should overwhelm us. Well, we've begun at the beginning, so let's step on to verse 2. After calling the people to worship, the psalmist then turns to why God's people are to worship Him. And essentially it's this. People are to worship God because of what He has done, His deeds, and His character, His excellent greatness. Praise Him for His mighty deeds. That's pretty easy to understand. Praise Him according to His excellent greatness. Martin Luther once said that we cannot give God anything. For everything is already His, and all we have comes from Him. We can only give Him praise and honor and thanks. And that lies at the heart of Psalm 50. That lies at the heart of worship, really, giving God praise and honor and thanks for His mighty deeds and for His excellent greatness. But what has God done that is so marvelous? What has God done that is so mighty? Well, I'm glad you asked. For starters, God created all things. In the revelation of St. John, the fourth chapter, the fact of creation alone is the cause for worship of God. In that chapter, chapter 4, God says, See, uh, Jesus, my tongue got tangled, not enough coffee this morning. 
John sees this picture of heavenly worship in which all these angel, angelic beings and, and weird creatures and these things called elders are worshiping God. The elders in, John, in the revelation of St. John chapter 4, the elders cast their, throne, their crowns before God's throne and they say, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things. And by your will they existed and were created. And so God is the creator, and is therefore it is good and right for that which he created to worship him. Even that part of creation we wouldn't think of as capable of worship. Remember what we heard from Psalm 148 just last week. The psalmist called the sun, the moon, the shining stars, the sea creatures, the fire, the hail, hail, snow, mist, stormy winds, mountains, hills, fruit trees, cedars, beasts, and livestock, creeping things, and flying birds, all to praise God, to join with kings, people, princes, rulers, young men, young women, old folks, and children to the praise of the Creator. All of creation. But especially humans, because humans alone are made in the image of God. And so there is a, a next level of worship, so to speak, that humanity is called to engage upon because humanity alone is specially created in the image of God. And if a tree will worship God, and they do because of the way they're created, how much more is the argument, a valid argument, how much more should we who are made in the image of God worship the Creator? This gives us purpose, this gives us meaning, this gives us a telos, an end, and it would be enough. If that's all that there was, it would be enough for God to be worshipped for his mighty deed of creation. But creation isn't all there is. There's also redemption. The story of the Bible is essentially that of God the Creator working within his creation to bring to himself worshipers by redeeming them. The storyline of the Bible is essentially one of creation and redemption. And whether we talk about God's actions on behalf of his people as redemption, deliverance, or salvation, we see that God works on behalf of those who are his to be his, and then when they are his, he continues to work on their behalf. You think of the exodus from Egypt, the founding of the kingdom, the deliverance from exile, all of which are part of God's ultimate, or, or all of which are a part of God's acts of salvation, of deliverance, and point forward to God's ultimate act of salvation found in Jesus, Jesus Christ. You think about the incarnation of the Son, the, the coming of Jesus, the kingdom of God with Him, the crucifixion, the resurrection, the ascension, God pouring out the Holy Spirit upon His church, all part of God's mighty deeds, mighty acts of redemption. You see, the simple fact is we exist because of God, and we are delivered from sin, death, and hell by God. We are made to worship Him, and because of His work to redeem through Jesus Christ, we can worship Him in spirit and in truth. And it would be enough. It would be enough if that is all there was. It would be enough to worship God for his acts of creation and his acts of redemption, but that isn't all there is. There's more, as there is also consummation. And when we talk about consummation, we're talking about God's promises of what he will do at a point in the future to forever and physically establish his new kingdom upon his new creation with the return of Jesus, the crucified and risen king. You see, a time is coming, 
God has promised when Jesus will return to destroy evil forever, to gather his people to himself for forever, and for his people to rest in his presence forever. There is, yes, praise the Lord. There is a future that is dependent not upon princes or presidents or any human endeavor to create an earthly utopia, but a future that is dependent upon God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And he is worthy to be praised. These mighty deeds of God, creation, redemption, and consummation are causes of worship and praise. These three mighty deeds of God are caused to worship God regardless of the situation or context in which we find ourselves, regardless of politics, economics, social status, or any other external factor that may impact upon us. Chicago Cubs fans should be worshiping God whether they won Game 7 or not. This morning, Clemson fans should be worshiping God whether they lost that game or not. 745 service, I said Auburn, I had to dodge rocks. <laughs> These three mighty deeds of God, creation, redemption, and consummation, they are cause of worship and praise because they are God's deeds and not our own. God has done these things and is worthy to be praised. And it would be enough for God to be praised for his mighty deeds, but the psalmist also says, praise him for his excellent greatness. You see, God is worthy to be praised because he is great in himself. And this is where the psalmist seems to be heading. Even if God had done none of his mighty deeds, he would still be worthy of praise because of the excellency of his being. God alone is wholly true and perfectly faithful, and so he's worthy to be praised. God alone is absolutely good. God alone is perfectly just, and so he is worthy to be praised. God alone is always loving and always kind. God alone always does that right thing, and so God alone is worthy to be praised. God alone is merciful and gentle. God alone is worthy to be praised. Of all that is in existence, only God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit exist simply because He exists. That is to say, God alone is the truly single, independent being in all of creation. And that's worthy to be praised. Of all that exists, God alone is pure, holy, and true, within whom there is no shadow or hint of darkness or deceit. Of all that which exists, only God is perfect in His person and in His being, Only God has the capacity and character of excellent greatness. And so for his mighty deeds, for his excellent greatness, only God is uniquely worthy to be praised. And to be praised with joy. Notice what the psalmist does here in verse 3. He goes from calling people in heaven to worship to describing what worship looks like And i got to tell you, it sounds a little chaotic. Praise him with the trumpet sound. Praise him with the lute and the harp. Praise him with tambourine and dance. Praise him with strings and pipe. Praise him with sounding cymbals. Praise him with loud, clashing cymbals. See, Mitch, you've got a place in heaven, brother. We notice the call to praise, and we notice the instruments listed here. 
we notice that these are instruments and the action of dance which communicate a level of joy and celebration, a, lot, a level of joy and thanksgiving that we sometimes miss. Am I the only one who hears this particular psalm and then wonders why sometimes worship services are more like funerals than parties? Am I the only one who hears this psalm and then wonder why sometimes we come into worship and leave worship looking like we've been sucking on lemons as opposed to worshiping the Creator God? Sometimes we, we think, we get this, this, this misunderstanding that reverence, the proper respect uh, and, and, and sort of uh, submission before God, that that is somehow exclusive with joy. Those are not mutually exclusive states of being. David himself danced in his tidy whities before God, and God didn't strike him dead when that happened. Somehow, David's dancing was both an expression of joy and reverent before the king, God. The psalmist here, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says loud clashing cymbals. You can be banging on those things like animal from the Muppets and be reverent and joyful. Yes, praise the Lord. The worship of God for his mighty deeds and excellent greatness is a joyous celebration because reverence and joy are not mutually exclusive. God's people in Jesus, listen, God's people in Jesus get to gather together to worship and praise God, the creator, for his mighty deeds. Creation, redemption, and promise of consummation. We get to gather together to talk about, celebrate the, our living King Jesus. I mean, come on, isn't that exciting? We get to do all of these things in the power and in the presence of the Holy Spirit. And if we find our worship to be joyless and not joy-filled, I think we really should ask ourselves the question, why? A few weeks ago, we saw the entire city of Chicago burst into joyful celebration as the Cubs finally won the World Series. Before I deactivated my Facebook account, I noticed how many new Chicago Cubs fans there were. <laughs> joyful celebration always accompanies the birth of a new child, right, John? It always accompanies the wedding of a couple. It does. Joyful celebration always accompanies a birthday celebration. I don't care how uh, uh, chronologically advanced you are in age, you always smile on your birthday because there's cake and candles and gifts. But sometimes people come to worship God for his mighty deeds and his excellent character, and we say, oh, it's just so boring because it's routine. We do the same thing every week. The New York Yankees have won like 57 World Series. I have never seen them get tired of celebrating. Right? I have never seen Alabama fans get bored of winning football games or national championships. They seem to be yearly occurrences. As an Oklahoma State fan, I celebrate every victory like a national championship because they're few and far between. <laughs> but here's the point, right? This is, it, it's funny to point out our little idiosyncrasies, but the thing is, if joy accompanies these things, World Series victories, national championships, if joy accompanies these good things, 
But when compared to God's work of creation, of redemption and consummation, things that are relatively eternally insignificant, why don't we worship God for those things that are eternally significant with the same joy we celebrate Chicago Cubs, Alabama Crimson Tide, etc., etc., ad nauseum? Shouldn't joy come with the worship of the one who's overcome sin, death, and hell and gives us life? Shouldn't it be a dance in a very real sense? Shouldn't there be amazing music? Shouldn't there be trumpet sounds and lutes and harps? I don't even know what a lute is, but I want to hear one played in worship. (laughs) And let me tell you something. If you think worship is boring here and now, you're going to hate heaven. All of humanity is called to worship God for his deeds, for his mighty deeds, for his character, his excellent greatness, with joy and thanksgiving. Worship of God is too great for merely human voices to proclaim. We join with angels and archangels and with all the company of heaven and with creation that sings praise to him. Worship of God is so great that it deserves the fullest expression of our energy and creativity. God deserves the best that we have, even if it means dancing, and even if it means the clashing of cymbals. And we do have great music here at this church. And we do, we are blessed with amazing creativity. Let's just keep it up an injection of joy and celebration. What a wide variety of musical instruments the psalmist includes. What an energetic, passionate, and joyful celebration the psalmist pictures as he shouts, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. And the more I look at biblical worship, the more I am struck by a real fundamental truth. Are you ready for it? Worship is, not, is about God, not about me. And worship is about the one with excellent greatness and mighty deeds, not the recipients of his grace through those mighty deeds. Anglican pastor David Peterson defined worship as an engagement with God on the terms he proposes and in the way that he alone makes possible. And so as we think about worship, we have to recognize that without God's initiative, there simply is no worship. Worship is always a response. Think about it. If God hadn't taken the initiative to create we wouldn't be here to worship. If your grandma didn't have babies, you wouldn't be here. If God didn't create, you wouldn't be here either. You think about it, if God didn't, hadn't taken the initiative to redeem through Jesus' crucifixion and his resurrection, if God hadn't created a worshiper out of you, you wouldn't be here to worship. If God doesn't take the initiative to send Jesus in his return, there won't be any future Worship. So a fundamental fact of worship is that God alone makes it possible because of his mighty deeds. And because God alone makes it possible, God alone gets to set the terms for what it is. Certainly it's true. Uh, Worshippers have a role to play in worship. We gather in the name of Jesus. We offer songs of praise on a variety of instruments. We offer our prayers. We read the word of God. We taste the bread and the wine of the Eucharist. But even in this We must always remember that God is, as Bishop John Rogers calls him, the chief actor in worship. Worship, quite frankly, isn't about us. It isn't about our preferences, nor is it about our expectations. Worship is about the celebration of God for his mighty deeds, for his 
excellent greatness. It's only in worship, true worship, focused on God, the audience of one. It's only in that place where we are freed to receive from God and be transformed. The truth is, the ironic truth is, the more we make worship about us, the less God gets involved, the less we actually receive. Worship is to be focused on God. And through the liturgy, through word, and through sacrament, those who worship God engage with him on his terms so that he might be glorified, so that he might be praised for his mighty deeds and excellent, <coughs> excuse me, and excellent greatness. <coughs> what a marvelous truth. <coughs> I've been dealing this for, with this for two months now. What a marvelous truth. What amazing grace. In worship, God meets with those he creates to receive praise, thanks, and honor. And he does a work in us so that those things which are cast down are raised up. And those things which are grown old are made new. So praise the Lord. Praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Said this to you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. <clears throat>